Oh, it is empty. All right, go go get out. it. Re up, re up. See, I oh. I have I have a I have a can with me, so you're gonna the have to question go is here. I will exit all the screen so all y'all can see my. I finally leveled up to the you know Darcy level of creating backgrounds. Um, okay, well, you you leave. Okay, and then I'll leave to show mine, so they can stare at each other. But the murmurers. So one of us has to be talking about this, right? Isn't it where like they can't see? Right, but I can like just like shut my camera, and then my background will be the only thing present. Okay. All right. Well, let me add to it. Let me see if I can even reach this. Eat. Come on, little T Rex arms. Nope, that one wasn't it. And this one's it. See, as far as you know, I'm this talking. Do you know where this person is from? You what? Do you know where my background is from? Hold on. I have to zoom into your background because I'm blind rich here. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, oh, I'm not going to lie. Our backgrounds, our backgrounds could be cousins. Yes. Oh, there it is. My little T-Rex arm works. Proud of you. Has everybody heard all my back wrestling? Yes. I, I'm living in a bad house right now. <laughs> great. It's great. But that means I come to wine and candy. And it's nice and close. Oh, I got that perfect floor sound. All right. Well, shall we talk about our backgrounds and why there are backgrounds? Sure, you can start. Uh, well, because, of course, naturally, this is coming out on the first. And it's my birthday month. This is how I feel, you guys. Birthday, right birthday, now. birthday. This is how I'll probably look on my birthday. <laughs> That's so dramatic. Well, this is mine. I'll just close my camera so you can see a better view. This is the guy from Creep Show. I love it. Yeah. So happy New Year! It's because this comes out on the first. Could you imagine that? Like this is this fucking thing got planned. So we totally planned it that the episodes would eventually end on Christmas Day and New Year's because we're just like. That on top of our shit. Hey, but really, it's because all the holidays on Sunday. Yeah, but now because we do on top of our shit. <laughs> so here we are. Happy New Year! Um, and since we're at the top of the episode, we're gonna get some things out there because I know you guys want to get into part two of Ed Kemper, the poet killer. And if you haven't, go back two weeks and listen to it because. Just fucking do it. Anyway, so it's a new year. I am projecting or I guess reflecting. We have hit a thousand downloads by this point. So yay us. And if not, okay. Anyway, um, after today's episode, because it is new year, we're actually taking a small hiatus. Please don't freak out. T-A-K-T-B will be back um, on January 29th. So we're only going to be gone for like three weeks. 
but the podcast is going to be undergoing some maintenance, some love, and some really great stuff. So we're going to be doing some um, self-care for the podcast, if you will. So we'll be back. We'll still be posting content. We just won't be posting new episodes for the next couple of weeks. So you'll only be missing us for three weeks. That'll give you time to re-listen to some of your favorites, right? And like I said, we'll still be posting content on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and everything. So please just be on top of that. And Shannon, we should probably get on top of YouTube shorts because basically we like stories. But we'll also do that too. So if you're not following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, do that, you know? And we have Patreon and Patreon, and there's bonus episodes that are only available there. So go do that, too. That's the thing. That's totally a thing. Yep. And I know some people are going to be like, wait, what the fuck? Because they're taking out their hiatus earlier. Just know that we are humans. You know, we do both through things in life, too. Um, But we want to make the podcast a focus for us. And a lot of that, too, is, you know technology sucks and it's not always easy and anybody who creates content can understand that that it takes a while to get used to that <laughs> so for a lot of us too this will be for darcy and i should say actually it's going to be a time for us to really learn to focus on how to create the content that we want to create and to be able to put it out there so that we can get it out there more regularly for you guys because we want to be able to reach more people we want to be able to to get to know more people and have more people follow us and stuff like that. And a lot of that's going to be based off of social media. So we want to be better at that. So this is all going to be to work for more of the regularity that we want, but we need to take that time to learn too, because like I said, we say all the time, we do still work full time and we do have lives so that we're dealing with a lot of things. So we have to kind of focus on certain things at certain times and right now it's going to be not necessarily creating new episodes but to be able to bring more content to you guys for you to watch um, or follow on various different platforms so beautifully said so with all that said I guess we're going to jump right into it by saying hello to everyone listening uh, new or tenured alike so if you're returning to us we're so happy to have you welcome back to the psych ward if you're new here welcome to the psych ward um we have some fabulous episodes ahead of us if you haven't listened already um but we're happy to have you you can find us at takt podcast on instagram twitter and tiktok you can also email us at takt at gmail.com you can find us on our website at www.takekillertobrunch.com on facebook at takekillertobrunch and you can find us on YouTube at Take a Killer to Brunch. If you haven't noticed, we make life very easy for you. So with that being said, welcome everybody in the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, India, Bulgaria, Jamaica, Russia, Belgium, Italy, Australia, El Salvador, Nigeria, Sweden, Germany, Albania, Canada, Cuba, Spain, Mexico, Norway, the Philippines, and South Africa. I I keep forgetting to say this, but just like skip 30 seconds ahead if you don't want to listen to this, which is rude because you're probably going to get shouted out. You're somewhere in the world. Um, In the United States, hello to everybody in Florida, California, Washington, Massachusetts, Georgia, Illinois, Texas, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, Tennessee, Colorado, Nevada, South Carolina, Kansas, Wisconsin, Kentucky, North Carolina, 
Virginia, Indiana, Utah, Maryland, Minnesota, Montana, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, the District of Columbia, Iowa, New Jersey, New Mexico, and Ohio. So hello, everybody, and welcome. We're happy to have you here. As I said at the top of the episode, we're continuing where we left off. This is part two of our co-ed killer, uh, Edmund Kemper. Just recently celebrated a birthday in part one on December 18th, who is now 74 years old. And uh, yes, he's still very much alive. So not a spoiler, but yeah, there we go. Just to reiterate where we left off, a recap of part one. Uh, Ed Kemper had a shitty mother and an absent father who did love him. And then he killed his grandparents and he didn't really want to have him around anymore. And then he called his mom. So I said, you need to call the police. Uh, he killed some cats along the way and he played some really weird games with his sister and their friend. That's where we're at. He's 15 years old. He's six foot four. He just killed both of his grandparents, and now he's getting arrested. We're all caught up. Fabulous. <laughs> I love that. All of that. <laughs> Beautiful. <Please recap>. on. <laughs> That's what we should do on these on these two parters. We should just do like one of those cliche like. I don't think did Grey's Anatomy ever do that previously on stuff. I don't remember, but a lot of episodes do, and I love that because it's funny to say. It's like, almost like a, like a speeded up version of like, this is what basically happened. <laughs> <laughs> you don't see very many previously odds anymore. So when I do, I'm just kind of like, oh, that's interesting. So yeah, that was your yeah, previously I mean, on. Okay. Clips, you know, all, all the streaming. The basically just watch everything back to back to back to back to back because we're those kind of people nowadays that we don't really need it previously on because we very much remember because it, it was just 10 minutes ago. Yeah, we binged the whole season. So yeah, now it's when, because Netflix takes a year to put anything out before your shit fucking airs, you're just going to go binge the whole first season before you watch season two because you forgot most of season one. So whatever. Yeah, so that's pretty much the only time you ever see like a recap is when you're waiting like a year for the second season two. So then they recap season one and help with the important bits. But, you know, back in the day when like, we were kids, too, it was like, you had to wait a whole damn week for your next episode. So you had to recap what the last episode was because you couldn't remember that. Mm-hmm. Then you're like, oh, yeah, that did happen. Oh, yeah, that was her dad. Weird. All right. So, at Temper calls the police. He says, I just killed my grandparents. I'm 15. They show up. They don't believe them. They're like, is this kid really 15? They arrest him. He gets sent to Ascadero State Hospital, um, which was like a mental hospital. It was also like a reform school-ish for youths. I mean, like I said, he was 15 years old. So he gets sent there, and he's very polite. So Ascadero is probably the place we were talking about um, at the end of the last time we talked about this, or last week, really, when I was like, Trust me, he fucking gets handed all the shit. This is where he gets handed all the shit. This at Ascadero. So he's at Ascadero for six years. He doesn't get released until he's 21 years old. Um, so he gets there and he immediately fits right in. And by that I mean he can he loves and he thrives on structure, which we kind of see to be a trend with most of these violent offenders or serial killers that end up in some kind of reform school in their youth. They're not necessarily just sent to hospitals or 
I'm sorry, they're not innocent sent to like just jails, which is more common nowadays. There's very few, if any, like quote unquote, like reform schools left. I mean, I think in Arizona, we had like the ACEs. <laughs> that was just like a school and they had like police officers like in the school. But these are like, it's a it's a state hospital. It's a jail, but not a jail. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like a school. So back in the 70s, well, this is the 60s, really. Um, he gets sent here. He's very polite. He follows all the rules. Um, he starts to excel in his studies where he wasn't before. So like when he was at home, he really wasn't a great student. Like I said, he was getting bullied. But now all of a sudden he is excelling in his studies and he's following all the rules and he's very polite. And everyone's like, who like, is he really supposed to be here? So this is when they decide they're going to give him an IQ test, which I talked about at the top of last episode. And then they discovered that he was technically a genius. He had 145 IQ. He was very, very smart. And he was just like as happy as a clam because he thrived on the structure that he had there. He knew what he had to do from the time he woke up to the time he went to bed. And he was so obedient and so good that they were like, you know what? He can help us around the office. So the doctors, who are the psychiatrists and the therapists treating the other inmates um, in this hospital or patients in this hospital, they start giving him clerical duties. Like he starts to file papers and he is just kind of helping out here and there. And then they start allowing him to sit in on sessions with patients. So doctors are letting him, yeah, they're letting him sit in while they're conducting their normal sessions with their patients. And he's watching this. He's observing how they react, how they react. What did the doctor like? What didn't the doctor like? And then it's not only sitting in on sessions, he's now being allowed to administer tests to the patients with answer sheets. So he knows exactly what they're looking for and what answers they want, what answers they don't want. So he's sitting in on sessions and learning exactly what the doctors are looking for. He's administering tests to patients that he has no degree doing. And he knows exactly how these are being graded. He's seeing how they're being looked at. He's watching the doctors. He's not watching the patient. He's watching the doctors and how they're reacting to the patients. So he's learning how to work the system, right? Nothing could go wrong, right? You're literally giving somebody like the answer sheet, basically like to a test. They were like, listen, watch us conduct a session with people just like you. And then here's the answers to this test we need you to give them. And if they rank in these areas, this is how it needs to be interpreted. Or he is looking for certain things. So he's circling things, he's checking things, and he's seeing how they react. So he's like, okay, so if I do this and I don't do that, and I do this and I don't say that, then this should be the result that I should get. Because he learned that if he doesn't change something, he's never going to get out of there. I mean, he was sentenced to an in like an indiscriminate amount of time and he didn't want to be there because 
his violent fantasy thoughts, they're not going away. He's just hiding them from his doctor because he knew if he brought them up and that he's saying like, you know, my hatred for my mom triggers them or I am having fantasies about, um, you know, cutting the head off of a woman in my dreams and it brings me pleasure. And he's saying all these really dark thoughts. He knows that he's not going to get very far. So he's suppressing information from his doctors. He's telling them the things they want to hear. And while doing all of this, so he's doing all of this, he's still having his therapy sessions and he's lying to his doctors and he's manipulating his doctors. He also joins the Junior Chamber of Commerce. And if you don't know what that is, I don't really remember what it is. Basically, it's a fancy elite thing. And by fancy and elite, some of the former members include Bill Gates, Richard Nixon, uh, General Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton were all former junior chambers of commerce. This also does include Edmund Kemper, but they don't like to mention that when people join. So they refrain from <laughs> bringing up that one in particular. She's finally deemed uh, eligible for parole at the age of 21. They're like, we definitely think that he is no longer a threat to himself or society at the age of 21, which we've kind of come to learn. If a therapist and doctors are saying that in the 70s, probably not true. <laughs> yeah. Probably not so much to back up that. <laughs> yeah. So. But the one thing Ascadero did do right was they're like, we strongly advise that you do not release him to the care of his mother. His mother is the problem. She's not going to help him get better. We really, really advise that he doesn't go back into her care. Now, some of you are saying he's 21 years old. Why does he need to go back into the care of his mother? Because he went in when he was 15. He was a child when he went into care. He's, even though he's legally an adult, he doesn't really know how the outside world works. He's been incarcerated for six years. All he knows is institution. So they needed him to go to the care of someone, anyone really. And when they reached out to his father, his father told them that he would literally murder him if he showed up at his doorstep because of what he did to his parents. So his dad was out of the question. He had no other family members. So they were like, hey, you can either go. Here's what I find interesting is they don't make the decision. They kind of give it to Ed, I think. But basically, it's like, well... You could go back to being incarcerated at Pascadero because you have no one to take you. Or you could go back to your mom. And Ed's like, they, fuck this place. I'm out. But they literally sat them down, put him back on his mom. That's annoying. It is. And the shitty part is, is like, he had nowhere to go. So they were like, so we either reincarcerate him. Or we give him back to his mom. And he's like, I'd rather just go back to my mom. Yeah, the exact person that they said that he shouldn't go back to. Mm-hmm. So he does. He goes back to live with his mother after six years. 
at the age of 21, and he's on parole. So he's on parole, and part of his parole is he has to, you know, do the parole thing. He has visits. He has the whatever. Hmm. He also has to attend college. So he enrolls in college. I don't really think that he ever completed college or really attended, but he at least had to enroll. So he enrolls in college. He's living with his mom. And for a while, they were cordial. For a while, things were okay. He doesn't know what to say because, like, his mom had such a hatred for him. Why would she say, okay, I'll take him back? Like, I don't know. I mean, she, she I mean, like, really feared to the point that she made him live down in a basement when he's a child. And now, all of a sudden, because he's getting let out, uh, basically, like, a prison for children. Okay, I'll take him back now. Like, I think for her, I think for Clarnell, it was, she has somebody to be her punching bag. Yeah, I guess that's true. You know, like, because how would she look to the community? Because, like, in her eyes, how would she look to these fine medical professionals if she says she wouldn't take her son back? Yeah. I guess she has some sort of benefit there, too, because, like you said, she can let out all that rage right back onto him again. Oh, yeah. So when he finally goes back to his mom, he realizes his mom's been married for the third and divorced for the third time. So she's been married. She's been remarried and divorced two more times since his incarceration. Hence her new name um, at the top of the last episode. But he did say that for a while they were cordial. There was no really heated arguments, but that was very short lived as it would be. Um, by this point, his mom was an administrative assistant. Um, I totally don't remember the name of the college. But she's an administrative assistant at some college. And because she's an administrative assistant, he also enrolls in college there. He also gets a sticker, uh, a parking pass, a parking sticker to the campus. And this is important later on. Um, he really wanted to be a cop, believe it or not. He really wanted to do right in the world. He wanted to do justice. And he was denied that. He did everything, but he was here's what I don't get, and I get it, it was the 70s, but he was actually denied the ability to be a cop because he was too tall. Really? Mm-hmm. It's like nowadays it's like hell yeah, sign him up. Yeah. So he he stands six nine. So he was probably six nine at the time, and he was just too tall. So he was too tall for their requirements, and he wasn't allowed to be a cop. This really upset him because that's something he has no control over, right? Like, there are things that he has control over, and that's a big part of um, situations like his, for example, is they need a sense of control because a lot of times they are in situations where they don't have the control, uh, like his release. So he was like, I'll pick the lesser of two evils. I'd rather be free and at my mom's house than incarcerated and dealing with and battling these thoughts. So he's not allowed to be a cop. So he does the next best thing. And he joins, he starts to work for the highway. So he decides, I'll work for the highway. I'll do some stuff there. And, and that's, that will kind of keep me in the force. So he starts to frequent this bar. 
um, called the jury room. And that's where all the cops and everything uh, they went to and they frequented. It was kind of like their local watering hole. He became known as like a friendly nuisance to the police officers. So everyone knew who he was. He just was super like, oh, like, tell me about this and tell me about that and teach you about this case. You know what I mean? They're like, I just got off. I don't want to talk about work. But he was just so engrossed with like being a cop and having to live vicariously through other cops that he was they're like he's harmless is basically how they saw him because they didn't know about his past he was a minor right so he's enrolled in college he doesn't have a job he wants to be a cop he takes a job as a highway person or highway patrol or not patrol but i think it was construction maybe um but anyway, he's working for a highway. He's frequenting this watering hole with other cops. He's befriending other cops. He's learning all these things. Um, and eventually, he meets a young woman who he doesn't have to kill to find him worth her attention. And he eventually becomes engaged when he's in his year of release when he's 21. Um, his soon-to-be bride was only 16, but he says that they never had, like, a, a sexual relationship. Um, she was just very kind to him, and they would talk, and she basically was giving him emotional support that he never got in his life. Um, and he really enjoyed that, and he looked forward to marrying her um but when his mother found out that he was engaged to a woman five years younger than him she had no uh she did not like it which most of us are like yeah totally get that 21 year old should not be marrying a 16 year old this is also the 70s i'm not condoning it but i'm also trying to make sure everyone's aware of the time here and, um, I mean, this is also the time when, like, 16-year-olds could just go get married because they got pregnant. Like, just so people are aware. Like, he could still do that. Um, but his mother was so obsessed. So, also, mind you, I'm totally skipping a piece here. <clears throat> he eventually moves out of his mom's house because their relationship goes from cordial to tumultuous not after a very long period of time and he moves out where he moves to is very close to that jury room and that's how he just continues to frequent that bar his mother after finding out about his fiance would call him repeatedly on his phone um, at his apartment telling him that he needed to leave her that he was disgusting and all this kind of stuff and he would not listen to her and when he stopped answering her phone calls she would show up at his apartment she would show up at his apartment only to scream at him and to tell him how she felt about his engagement to this girl to the point where he broke off his engagement just to get her to stop bothering him wow sad it is sad what's even sadder 
is after he broke off this engagement because his mother was like, she's too young. What the fuck? This, 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 which we're all like, yeah, we support that decision. Forgetting a little bit who Clarnell is, he was like, okay, well, can you introduce me to anyone my age? I mean, she works at a college, right? Like, he's like, do you, can you introduce me to women my age? And her answer was to laugh in his face and to tell him, absolutely not, because no woman would ever want you. You're undeserving of love. And then all of the cycle repeats itself. Oh, boy. So she got what she wanted. She ruined his relationship, which, again, a 21-year-old should not be marrying a 16-year-old. But then to also be like, yeah, no, I'm also not going to help you find someone your own age because you're disgusting and I don't think you deserve love. So no. So fun, right? So now we're going to rev up to 1973, which is when his killing spree basically takes place and the murders. So what would cause these? So he... He was on to say um, in a bunch of interviews, too, like, what would happen is he would get into a huge blowout fight with his mother, and that would send him um, on a killing spree. Well, Darcy, how does he end up in a huge fight with his mom if he doesn't live with her? It's a very good question. He eventually loses his job um, working for the highway because he has these dark thoughts and he has these dark urges. So he starts picking up hitchhikers and driving them to where they want to go. We're all like, oh, my God, hitchhikers. It's the 70s. Hitchhiking is a thing. It's totally fine. And it really isn't until, like, the mid-70s when people are like, you really should stop hitchhiking. Like, people are fucking killing people. Like, you probably shouldn't do that, right? Like, the Ed Kempers and the Ted Bundys of the world are just like, in, right? So it it's not something to be super scared of, but just to be cautious about. Just, like, be careful when you're out hitchhiking when you're out hitchhiking so he's picking up people and he's dropping them off and he knows this area of california really well and he's just trying to talk like he's like i'm just trying to talk to women i'm like that's so sad <laughs> he's just trying to talk to women and he's like i just want some company that's all i just want some company exactly and he starts to do this so often that he is fucking up at work. He gets caught out that he's like leaving his post to go drive around and pick up hitchhikers. He eventually loses his job. Um, and when he loses his job, he has to go back home and live with his mother. So he goes back home to live with his mother. And while he's living with his mother, they get into these huge fights. And when they get into these huge fights, he has all this pent up aggression. That he, and he even says, like, I was still scared of her. He's, I was, you know, he's like, even though I towered over her, she scared me. You know, like, it's that little eight-year-old boy on the inside scared of my mother. So I would leave. And I decided one night, the next person I pick up in my car is going to die. He decided. So, it's on the night. That, like, that control, too. It's like. You know, she takes all that control away from me. She takes all the power away from me. So I need to take that back. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. 
So he um now I don't remember when this happens. I don't know if this was leading up to the murders or if this happened during his murders. But eventually he ends up um rigging his passenger side door to lock. So you can't open it from the inside. Basically. So you're fucked once you got in, right? Kind of like a child lock then. Basically. But there was, I don't think there was child locks at the time. Uh, I mean, he said he fucked with it. So he rigged it so it would lock from the inside and you couldn't unlock it. Um, he also kept a gun underneath his driver's side chair in case he ever needed it, which he eventually would. Um, and he kept, and over time he built a kit and that he kept in his trunk and that involved things like rope, bags, so on and so forth. So basically he turned his car into a killmobile. Oh. I mean, smart for doing it over time because, you know, we always hear about those killers that get caught because they decide to buy duct tape, rope, a shovel, all at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. Where's so on May 7th, 1972, Ed Kemper picks up Mary and Pesk or Pesquet who was 18 years old, and her friend, Anita um, Luchessa, who was also 18 years old. They were trying to get back to Stanford College um, from Fresno, or from Fresno, um, and they were only hitchhiking back because they just wanted to meet new people. That's the only reason why they were hitchhiking back, which is to my earlier point. Yeah, I don't know. I so mean, they're like the, like the back in day version of like many people on social media, you know, you never know, I guess. ASL? You met them in chat rooms and no one's picture looked like them. Understood. No, yeah. So they don't know the area and he realizes they don't know the area because he's been driving the area for months, learning it. So he decides. He's just going to go, I think it was like east instead of some other direction. I don't know directions, people. But he decides to go east. Like yeah. back, Darcy is very terrible directions. She would get lost all the time. UPS is my like, best I mean, friend. it was bad. Yep. And Arizona's on a grid. I just need everyone to know that. Yeah, I mean, Arizona's really hard to like get lost in. Darcy did. She would. Listen, I don't know north, south, east, and west, but if I'm like, are you going up or down the 17? I knew where you were. <laughs> I can give me direction. But do you know at least never eat soggy waffles or never eat soggy weenies? I know the phrase, but if you're like, oh, I'm going north on the 17, I'm like, I have no fucking idea where you are. But you're like, oh, I'm going up the 17. I'm like, okay, so this is the exit. You're going to turn left. Like, I don't yeah. know why it works that way. Darcy's that person when you, when you give her directions, yeah, like turn at the purple bush, right, and she's like, oh, that purple bush, got it. Yeah, if you pass the tractor, you went too far. <laughs> For real, though, it was a struggle, you guys. Yeah, that's good. I'm here now. John's good with directions. Yeah. Um, Bless John. <laughs> Bless his soul. So he ends up taking the two young women up to uh, Lamoa Prima Pripta. 
mountains. Basically, he takes him up into the mountains. And he he's like, okay, there's two of them. I don't know how I'm going to do this. So basically what he does, the doors, the doors are rigged, the can't get out. He pulls out the gun. And the girl in the front seat is like cool, calm, and collected. Her friend in the back seat, I believe it's Anita who is the calm one. And Mary is like losing her shit. So he's like, I need you to get out of the car. Like, I'm not going to kill you, but I need you to get out of the car. Because he knew he couldn't kill... For some reason, he, I mean, also, this is his first kill. So he's like, I can't do this by myself. So he has this gun. He forces Anita out of the car. He, I'm sorry, he forces Mary out of the car. He leaves Anita in the car. And he brings her over to the trunk. He's like, I need to, I need to get something out of the trunk. So he locks her in the trunk. And he gets back in the car and he tells Anita, like, blah, 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 blah. And she's trying to talk him down she's trying to like understand him she's trying to like just talk to him what's going on and he was like you know have you not spent all of that time because he talks about the people that he sat in and the people some of the people just so you know that he got to sit in on um, sessions with with doctors were rapists and murderers and he's like the one thing I learned from rapists was you can't leave a witness. That's how most of them ended up here is because somebody convinced them to let them live or tricked them and they got away. And that's how they got caught. He's like, that's what I learned is you can't leave a witness. Yeah. They say the smartest thing you can do is like when you come to like a situation like that was to get to know the person or talk to the person that's potentially going to do you harm. Because once they see you not as like an object and as a person, they have a lot harder time with that because they're just, it's a natural human response. Exactly. So that's exactly what Nita tries to do. And she's like, just whatever. And he's like, if I hadn't sat in on those sessions and learned that, he's like, she almost won me over. He's like, and then I got pissed off because I knew exactly what she was doing. He's like, and then I got angry. So eventually he's, he gets a bag out of the back. See, somehow he gets a bag and he puts this bag over her head and he starts to strangle her. And when he, he's got her on her stomach between the driver's seat and the passenger seat. Okay. And um, eventually he's like, man, like, it's taking a long time for her to die. Like he's trying to strangle her. And he realizes she's bit a hole through the bag. Bad. And this girl, still believing that she can talk her way out of this, is like, Ed, like, I couldn't breathe. Like, I almost suffocated. Like, look, you know what? Go hard. Like, I respect the shit out of her and, like, the shit... Like, I respect that. Like, she was probably scared shitless. And she's like, I almost died. Yeah. And so he said he got angry because she was defying him. And she wasn't doing what he wanted her to do. So he pulled out this hunting knife and he stabbed her to death. Repeatedly. Eventually she died. And now he's like, I have to deal with her friend in the trunk. 
So he gets out and he goes around to the trunk. He opens the trunk and he's like, she can see blood on him. And she's like, oh my God, like what the fuck happens? Like freaking out. And he's like, you're French. He's like, and he talks about this in his interviews. He's like, I couldn't tell her that her friend was dead. He's like, I didn't want her to know that she was dead. He And he's like, I don't know what it was. I just couldn't, I couldn't tell her that. So I lied to her and I told her that she got smart with me. So I punched her. I didn't, I didn't hurt her. I didn't kill her, but I punched her. And that's why there's blood on me. Yeah, but you don't get that much blood just by punching somebody. Right. And so he's like, she's really badly injured. We got to take her to the hospital. I need you to get out of the car. So he gets her out of the trunk. So he's coaxing this girl out of the trunk that he put in the trunk. And then he like walks her around. And when she's not looking, he shoots her in the back of the head, basically on the side of his mouth. So he stabs her friend to death in the car. He shoots her other friend in the back of the head on the mountain. Um, And it takes hikers two months to find their bodies. And um, what they do is they find Marianne's head, but they don't find Anita's head. And Anita, the one that was being super smart and like trying to like get through to him, he said that he remember, like, he thought about their life. He's like, if I had lived a different life and I had met her at a different time in my life, in a different world, he's like, I thought about the life we could have had together and the kids we could have had. He's like, I always loved her blue eyes. She's the only one of his victims that he says that he has remorse for killing because she was just so beautiful and the biggest thing was like her big blue eyes and he was like i just think about like the kids we would have had like they would have had like her beautiful blue eyes and i'm like so he took marianne's uh he they found marianne's head but he took anita's head and she's the only one that he has remorse for killing out of all of his victims anita is the only one that he regrets killing like almost like a like a souvenir almost or something you know that's probably literally because she didn't have to talk to her unfortunately Mm -hmm. no matter how much he knew what she was doing he does he respected her for what she was doing and he's like i think we could have we could have been a good couple if i had met her in a different world i was like maybe yeah but here we are so his next victim. We're gonna kind of go here. We're gonna kind of go fast. I know I'm 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 staying on each one. But so the first murder took place in May. It's now September 14th of 1972, and he picks up an Iko Ku. Iko Ku is 15 years old, by the way. She decided to hitchhike home from dance class because she didn't want to wait for the bus. She was a very smart, bright young woman. Her family loved her. She was taking dance classes. It was time to go home. She missed the bus. She's waiting for the bus. She didn't want to wait for the bus, so she decided to hitchhike. And who picked her up? But none other than Ed Kemper picks her up. And he decided that he was going to make sure that his victims from then on, he could convince them to trust him because of what happened with... Look, sorry. It what happened with Anita. He was like, I want my victims to trust me implicitly. So he 
you know, Aiko's like, I'm not going the right way. And he basically tells her that what he wants to do is a murder-suicide. He wants to kill her and then kill himself because he's severely depressed. And that wasn't true, but he told her that. And they're driving around a little bit. And then eventually he tells her that um, after talking to her, he is having second thoughts and he thinks that she's really understands him and he knows that he's lying to her like he's playing her the entire time she's a 15 year old kid and he eventually convinces her that she has changed his mind from murder suicide to just suicide so he's like you know what i'm just gonna kill myself i just need you here while i do it he convinces her of this and what i mean by he convinces her of this is he says, I need to get something out of the trunk. So he gets out and he's testing to see, like, is she going to try and escape? He knows she can't, but he's like, can she, is she going to try? She sits in the car, goes to the trunk. He gets out some duct tape from the back of the trunk. She's just sitting there. She's fully convinced he's going to take her home and then kill himself. So much so that when he gets back to the car, he realizes that he's locked himself out of his own car. His keys are in the ignition with Aiko. So she lets him back in, doesn't she? She lets him back in the car. He asks her, he's like, oh my gosh, I've locked myself out of the car. Can you please let me in? And she let Wow. I mean, she's fancy here, I mean. But Lord, girl, no. She lets him back into the car. And what does he do? He stabs her to death in the car. He gets back in. He's like, she let me back in the car. He's like, she could have escaped. And so he stabbed her to death. And then he left her body in his car overnight. Because he went out for a few drinks. Well, please don't let me go to the bar with all the police officers too, did he? Like, and he had her dead body in the back of his car. You know, how many times do you have to hear stories where, like, like you said, oh, my God, so many times. So many times he had opportunities to get caught. So now... It's the very next day. It's September 15th. I told you, he left her body in his car overnight while he went out for drinks. Well, he had parole hearing the next day. Well, not parole hearing. He had a parole appointment with his parole officer. So he's like, well, I have to make this appointment. I don't have time to get rid of her body. So her dead, rotting body is in his car when he goes to his appointment with his parole officer at the parole building. Which modern people, parole officers, are technically like police officers. In a sense. And guess what happened? They are part of the law. And on September 15th, 1972, he has successfully convinced his doctors and his parole officer that he is rehabilitated and no longer a danger to himself or society. Therefore, officially released from parole and now a free man, 
which also meant his juvenile record was expunged. Yeah, so that's a whole slippery subject of like juvenile shit happening, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like I said, I'm really curious to see what other people think too, because I know it, it is a case by case like basis, but how many times do you hear of like these serial killers that did shit when they were younger, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean, like, I, I know there's probably cases too where kids did like all they are and they don't when they were adults, but like, how do you know? Exactly. How do you know? I mean, but I get- on the flip side, though, they did wrong and literally giving you all the tools, you know, how to work through this. And when you hand someone like Ed Kemper the tools he needs to get out, I don't have sympathy for you. Yeah. Like you literally handed him the answer sheet. You literally handed him the answer sheet because you didn't want to pay someone to do the work. Hey. So, we're going to fast forward to January 8th, 1973. After another beautiful blowout with his mother, Ed Kemper goes on patrol. For a Cindy Shaw, who was 19 years old, he picked her up. Um, she was just hitchhiking, and he just happened to pick her up. And he was like, you know what? Stabbing and strangling is getting way too much for me. It's too messy. It's too risky. So he just took her up into the mountains, and then he shot her. Um, he shot her and then he hid her body in his room um, at his mother's house. So this was one of the bodies where I was like, he brought her home in the middle of the day. And because people don't want to pay attention to what's going on outside, people are going to mind their business. He was able to bring her body inside and hid her body in his room. And then later on, he would dismember her corpse. Um, and then he would just throw her body parts into the ocean. But within 24 hours, most of her body washed up on the shore and was recovered by authorities. And it's kind of around this time that they're noticing there's a pattern going on here of, you know, women being murdered who are hitchhiking. And, hmm, you know, they're being decapitated. And so there's a scare going across the area. So they're like, please. Don't hitchhike. Please don't hitchhike alone. Um, if you're, you know, because these women that are dying, they're all co-eds. They're all members of colleges. They're like, don't hitchhike with people who don't have university stickers. And what did Ed Kemper have on his motherfucking car? But a university sticker, because that's where his mom. So he was the exception to his own shit. But mind you, also they said, oh, don't he checked alone. Uh, motherfucker took down two females as his first victim, so that's invalid. So we're gonna fast forward less than a month later on February 5th, 1973. He um Drove to his mom's campus and offered a ride. 
to a Rosalind Thorpe, who was 23 years old, and an Alice uh, Liu, who was 21 years old. He shot them dead before even leaving the campus. So they get into his car. He immediately shoots them, and their dead bodies are in his car. Here's the crazy part. He, one's in the passenger seat, one's in the back seat. They're slumped over. He drives up to the gate, and the guy's like, what's going on? He's like, yeah, he's like, they were just, like, really, like, they're tired, they're hungover, like, I'm just taking them home. And he's like, oh, what's that? Hey, in broad daylight, by the way. So they didn't hear gunshots? Don't know. So there's two dead bodies in his car, and the security guy's like, well, he said they were asleep. Oh, my God. He leaves campus with these two dead women. Um, He decapitates both of them, which is in true Ed Kemper fashion. He removes the bullets from their heads because he doesn't want to trace back to him, and he scatters their body parts in different areas. And within a month, um, some of their body parts would go on to be discovered by some hikers uh, in the San San Mateo County near Highway 1. I have no idea where that is. People in California do. So that's kind of where some of their body parts would be found, but not all. Um, so, mind you, during all of this time, I don't specifically remember who. Why does it say But I think it was Cindy. I could be wrong, but I believe it was Cindy who, after he killed her and decapitated her. Now, mind you, I didn't say this before, so trigger warning, sorry, you're already this far deep. But he does, like, sexually abuse the skulls of these women after he kills them just so everybody's clear he then buries cindy's skull in the backyard of his mom's house with her head facing up towards his mom's bedroom window because he said he found it funny because his mother would always talk about that she wished people would look up to her. Wow. That's that's dark, isn't that? That's really dark. And she had no idea there was a skull in her backyard. And neither did the neighbors. She literally had to look up to her and then that was his point. And he was like, you know, had any of my neighbors looked over the fence to see what I was doing, he's like, I would have been in jail. Also, it's like that. It's literally like the people that blatantly don't care if they get caught almost. They're like almost asking for it that they can do literally whatever. Yeah. Also during this time, between all of these murders, because we're about to get to where he murders his mother, which is why I'm talking about all this now. He is sitting in his car and the police officer pulls up behind him and it's two cops. And they're like, hey, they ask him, they're like, we're looking for this house. 
they're looking for his mom's house or his house, but they mistakenly are asking about the house across the street. And they're like, we're trying to find whatever because they're investigating this case and they had gotten some tip and blah, 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 blah. And he had all the incriminating evidence that only in his car, like rope and duct tape and the gun and knives, not only in the car, but also in the house. And he's a felon on parole. He's not supposed to have these things. Um, They're like, yeah, can you point us to whatever? And he's like, oh, I was like super openly friendly with these police officers. I let them in the house. I let them search everything. And he's like, and they left. They had their guy. And they left. And they didn't even know it. Yeah. because he was like because I was so willing to cooperate he's like I don't think that they really would have thought that it was me right was I didn't trying. take the time to actually think and look and like see the cues and stuff so now it's April 20th 1973 he's had it he comes home and his mom's in bed. She was at a holiday party or something. He said, like, she in an interview, he's like, she came home. She was wasted. Like, she normally was. She went out to parties. She's in bed reading a book. And I'm going to my bed to say goodnight. And she looks at me and she says, oh, I suppose you're going to want to stay up all night and talk. He's like, and in in the interview, he actually kind of starts choking up. I don't know if he meant it or not. I I really don't. But he talks about it, and he's like, if she had never said that, he's like, I probably, I probably would have killed her. But he's like, I knew then I was gonna kill her that once she said that to me. How so though? Like, was it like in an ill and like intent that she said that? Like, oh, you weren't. Yeah, she was. She was starting a fight with him. Is what it was. As she was reading her book, and he was walking past, and he told her good night. She's like, I suppose you're gonna want to stay up all night and talk. Gotcha. Yeah, and so he's like, yeah, I know I was gonna fucking kill her. So he was like, nope. I'm not. So he walked out of her room. His mother was 52 years old, Clarnell uh, Standberg. He came back into her room with a claw hammer and a knife. And he bashed her head in. He beat her to death, stabbed her repeatedly. He unleashed everything onto her that he has been holding in for forever. He did say in interviews that he knew that he was going to kill her that night because he also was like, if I don't do this tonight, more innocent women are going to die. So, I mean, I don't know if that's how he really felt at the time. If that's, oh, was my phone? If that's really what, you know, he, he thought. But that's what he said. He was like, I knew that if I didn't, Another innocent woman was going to die. And I was like, oh my gosh, how admirable. Love you. <laughs> Whatever. Oh. Chivalry. 
Anyway, so he kills his mom. He decapitates her and he rips out her vocal cords. And he decided he was like, the one thing she used to destroy me my entire life, I was finally going to destroy of hers. Which was? Her voice. So he threw her vocal cords into the garbage disposal and turned it on. And he said he started to laugh because it actually got clogged, like it kind of clogged up and didn't completely like shred them to pieces. And he's like, even after that, she can't shut the fuck up. Oh, my God. So, um, he destroyed her vocal cords. He scree- He put her head, like, on the mantle. And he said he screamed at her head for hours. So, just imagine, he's unleashing everything he's ever wanted to unleash on her at this point in time. Because he knows she can't fight back. So, he's screaming at her head for hours. He threw darts at her head for fun. Um, and then, he violated her head. He also violated her throat hole. No. I don't know. Yeah. So after he did all of that, he stuffed her body in the closet and decided he was going to... He didn't know what to do. He was like, I just... I don't know what to do. I just killed my mother. I don't know what to do now. And so he decided that if his mom missed work, it would be suspicious. But if her and her best friend didn't come into work, it wouldn't be as suspicious because it'd be like, oh, they just ditched to go on like a girl's weekend or a girl's getaway. So he called later on that day. He called her best friend uh taylor hallett who went by sarah um and he said hey i'm trying to throw a party for my mom would you mind coming over to da, 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 da. and her being her best friend was like fuck yeah let's throw a party for clarinelle i fucking love that bitch i'll be over as soon as possible she was 59 years old so she was seven years older than clarinelle um so she went she came over with the pretense that was helping plan a surprise party for her best friend which is like heartbreaking right yeah and so she gets there naturally once she got inside the house he strangled her to death um and then he spent the night with her body just gonna let you interpret that to how you see fit and then after he relieved himself with her body he stuffed her into the same closet with his mother's body and then he really panicked he's like okay i just killed these two women my plan's in motion i'm gonna skip fucking town so he gets he takes sarah's car i don't know why he doesn't take his mom's car but whatever he takes sarah's car and he fucking gets the fuck out of dodge he's running on adrenaline and like a hope he's he's reading every time he stops he's checking papers He's listening to the news. He has the radio on. He's like, when is the story going to break that they found my mom's body? That's what he's waiting for. This very meticulous killer is now losing his shit because he's waiting for the police to be chasing him, basically. And he's only gone for three days. 
He he skips town and somehow he winds up, I think, in like New Mexico. Um, he doesn't get very far from California. He doesn't really get that far. And um his paranoia is kind of peaked. He's not saying anything in the news. Nothing is coming over the radio. And he decides that he needs to take control of the situation. He's like, I'm not going to wait for the police to come and chase me. I'm going to go to them. So, I know. It's so admirable. So, he calls the Santa Cruz police team. Which is where all of the cops he knows work. So, he calls them. And the guy who answers the phone is someone who actually knows him. And he confessed to killing his mother. He confessed to her murder. He confessed to where her body was. He's like, if you go to her house, she's in this closet. Like, And so is her best friend. He tells him everything. And this cop does not believe him. He firmly thinks that Ed is playing a joke. And he hangs up on the cop. Ed is like, you're not fucking listening to me. I'm not fucking joking. He's like, Ed, man, whatever. So he literally hangs up on the cop and he's like, what the fuck? Like, he's convinced these cops so well that he couldn't do that, that they don't believe his confession. I, mind you, like, he has a genius IQ. Like, this, it just doesn't add up. I still don't believe in his IQ test at all. So, he calls and um, he calls back and he's like, I need to talk to somebody else. And he's whatever. So he finally gets on the phone. Light flickers. And I'm like, what the fuck? And then the light like flickers again. And I'm like, what the hell? And I'm like, I'm like, did you see that? And then all of a sudden, like your face froze. And then it's what? like, you lost internet connection. I'm like, oh, fuck no. Like, this is not what I need. So. And the Wi-Fi was being super finicky. So I just turned on my hotspot because I was tired of waiting for it to try to fix itself. So, yeah, that's yeah. that's what they kept saying like oh darcy's trying to connect to audio like okay how long are they gonna take her to connect to audio um the amount of time it took that i'll show you what has happened to me now oh um if i can change this here really quick huh hold on Okay, yeah. Give me one second, you guys. So, now we're moving my background. I have to now readjust the way I am sitting because I have now been a seat chair. <laughs> oh, Penny. Penny. <laughs> she sees me. <laughs> She's so confused right now. She's adorable. She's like, I know the voice. I know the voice. Oh. Oh, me and my day. Yep. So, 
just made me spill something wanting to, so there's that too. I try to sit, so I'm not like sitting on her and I'm like on the little table. Like this is not working. It's not working. Trying to be respectful of the dog. Yeah, yeah. I'm on the corner of my tiny little chair here. And then the pillows, you may not have some more space. There, I'm just gonna, as you should. Trying to sit comfortably like this. Maybe I'll put up here. We go. There. That's okay. We are blessed with her presence, and that's all that matters. She could give two fucks less, but that's fine. Oh, she could not. Literally, like the entire time I'm trying to like get myself crackable, she's just like making this like annoyed noise. Yeah. See? You did. That's what she did. <laughs> Like, I'm so inconveniencing her right now because we're having to sit together. Mm-hmm. She's like, I know what you're doing, and God damn it. Is that her chair? Is that what she's decided? No, she just decides she wants to sit with me because she has a new fun fear uh, with cell phones thing. So, like, when, like, I get text messages and stuff like that. So, yeah, she's always afraid of, like, water bottles for whatever reason. Yeah. Like, playing with, like, a plastic water bottle. That's still there. The new thing is she hates when my phone goes off. Like, sometimes it's just, like, she'll just get up. Like, she feels like she needs to get up for whatever reason. And so she got off the bed, and she was, because she's laying on the bed. And then she just stared at me, and I'm like, what are you doing? There was, like, one of those slow, and she didn't even, like, jump up. She just, like, creeped her way onto the, like, chair with me. See, she didn't Oh, Penny. Sorry, I'm sweet wishing you. I mean, it's really inconsiderate of you. I am. How dare I? How dare you? How dare you? So, where did I lose you? Um, where about what did you think you lost me? I think I lost you when I said he called back to the police station. Yes. Okay. So he calls back to the police station. He's like, I have to talk to somebody else. He gets on the phone with somebody else. And they're like, okay, we don't believe you, but we'll we'll send some people out just to be sure. We'll just, you know, do our due diligence. I've... Never in my life heard of somebody confessing to two murders and they'd be like, we believe you, but we'll we'll send someone out just to be sure. So they send the cops out. The cops get to the house. They look in the closet, he said, where they were. And lo and behold, there were these bodies in the closet. And they're like, oh, fuck, he wasn't lying. <laughs> so he gives up willingly after the bodies are discovered. Um, he gives a bullying to officers. He's taken back to California and he just confesses to all of his other crimes along the way. And you're probably like, why would he do that? Like, why would he incriminate himself? Well, because he said to at least to according to investigators, what he told them and what he said in interviews was he said he knew that. Once he killed his mom, it was all over. He was like, I knew if I didn't kill her, I was going to kill somebody else. And once I did, I had no reason to keep killing. So I wanted to turn myself in. And I think part of that is true. I think the other part is 
he hated the idea of reacting versus control, which explains why he turned himself in when nobody was looking at him or her death yet. And he just turned himself in because of paranoia. So that's my assumption there. Well, after he's arrested and he's confessed to his crimes, before his trial, he attempts suicide two separate times. Both times are with a pen. He takes a ballpoint pen and he slices his wrist with both of the pens. And he's famously known for saying, you know, the phrase like the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, during one of his suicide attempts, he I think he does it inside of a courtroom or something. He does it where there's like, I don't know, the press nearby. And he he says, the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, I turned the pen into a sword is what he tells like the press. So he tries to do that. And on November of 1973, he would be sentenced to seven life sentences um, to be served concurrently which would make him eligible for parole, miraculously. What? Yeah. So instead of... So they're all being served at the same time, basically. I think that's how currently works, right? Yeah. Concurrently versus consecutively. Oh, So he has been eligible for parole. He is still incarcerated. He's been denied parole. You can imagine why. Um, And he currently resides in the California mental facility where he is a model inmate. And he volunteers and reads books on tape for the blind. So he is technically an audiobook reader. Um, That's fascinating. That's fascinating. He, uh, he, there is a trophy in one of his interviews. He's very, very proud of it, which, whatever, give the man his trophy. In one of the cases in the hallways is a trophy uh, for the volunteer thing, and that's his trophy. So he's very proud of that and his volunteer work. Um, he's been denied parole multiple times, as I said, and he's also waived his parole the last few times he's been eligible. I think he knows he's not going to get it. So he's just kind of like, suck it. I mean, the man's 74 at this point. What's he going to do? Um, and like I said, he's recognized. He's recognized as a model inmate, which shouldn't surprise anybody because he thrives in structure. Um, some not so fun facts about this whole case is during the time Ed Kemper was running amok in California, two other serial killers were on the loose and active at the same time. Those being John uh, Linney Frazier and Herbert Mullins. Um, Ed Kemper and Herbert Mullins would actually have cells next to each other at one point in time. And he talks about in some interviews how he basically behavior modified, therapied Ed Mullins, or I'm sorry, into Herbert Mullins into not being an annoying inmate for everybody around them um, with peanuts. So that's a fun story. Um, but yeah, they were actually, I guess, like cellmates, but they didn't have cells. They were cell buddies, I guess. Um, so those are some like not so fun facts about Ed Kemper. He is now 74 years old, as I said. And my source 
sources were uh, Murderpedia, findagraveandbiography.com. And I also listened to The XD Experience and Serial Killers. So those were my sources. And that, so ladies and gentlemen, is the co-ed killer, Ed Kemper. Thank you for coming to my talk. Yeah. Anyway, like it too. She really wanted to be involved, you guys, this time. It was whirlwind. It was the bonkers case. Oh, yeah, I didn't mention any of this. <laughs> he, does, he does go on to work with, I can never remember the guy's name, um, but he's the famous guy who helped create the behavioral science sector of the FBI. Um, and he worked with them to basically create, I wouldn't say a general profile of serial killers, that he does help with that, but he does help them get into the mind of serial killers. The book Mindhunter is a great book. Um, the show on Netflix called Mindhunter is a fabulous show. Um, you can also just like Google the guy. He also has masterclass, believe it or not. So if you're a masterclass subscriber, he also has one as well. But they did interview um, Ed Kemper. So he had a huge impact on, honestly, I would say Ed Kemper had a huge impact on the advancements that we have today in terms of serial psychology because Honestly, without him, I don't know how much we would know at this point in time. I don't know how many we would or would not have caught, but he was a huge impact. And there were a bunch of other ones they interviewed, but he was the, but he's the only one that has been so willing to do so much more and relay so much more insight and information and help. It's just kind of bonkers. So, he was a huge impact there, um, and it's also part of the reason why I find his case fascinating. I think it gave him kind of a purpose. Yeah, I mean, it's weird considering, you know, he was probably one of the most aware of what he was doing. He's what? He was probably one of the most aware of, like, what he was doing. You know, you always talk about how, you know, the serial killers have, like, a certain mindset, but, like, he was well aware. He's like, I know because my mom, I know it's been the rage I had with her. And even the simple fact that he really did stop killing after he killed his mom. It was like, that was the trigger. And he knew that. And it's just sad that it continued on for what it did. And he was like, he was dead. Not saying that he should have just went ahead and just killed his mom. You know what I mean? Because that's not healthy either. But I think... It, it speaks volumes of the fact that he was aware and that he spoke about it, you know, and he, I mean, it's not, it's not even that he really did good because ultimately people still got, you know, and I don't want to give him that respect, but that at least he had a decency to help people learn to get into that mindset and how to like, hopefully prevent more of that from happening. Mm-hmm. It's a bonkers. All of it's bonkers, really. Um, if anyone is interested, you can find the two most famous interviews that Kemper on YouTube. So there's like a 20 minute or 23 minute interview and like an hour and 18 minute interview. They're both fascinating. One's in like 84 and one's in like 91. So they're really great interviews if you're interested in listening to them. Um, but yeah. 
And I already told you where you could find us at the top of the episode. So I think I'm not going to do that at the end. But definitely, um, we're trying to hit that thousand downloads. So please share, like, rate. That, that goes a long way, even if you're just like, Posting on Apple five stars. If you're on Podbean, that one download, like those small things really do add up a lot. So thank you all so much for your support. Me and Shannon really appreciate it. Um, and we can't wait to be back in three weeks. So for us, this doesn't feel like it, but for you, it's January 1st, not for us. So uh, we'll see you guys at the end of the month and uh, cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Ah, whatever. Cheers. So, <laughs> uh, uh, sorry. I was putting my dog. Sorry, guys.